This morning we'll return to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, and we'll be looking primarily at verses 16 through 18. That is where James there uh, refers back to the book of Amos and uh, speaks to that in a prophetic uh, sense that he's looking at the prophecy of Amos and he's declaring uh, the, um, he, he's, he's taking that prophecy and then interpreting that into the context of what is happening there at the Jerusalem Council. And so the, the title of this morning's message is the Jerusalem Council Part 3, Understanding Prophecy. And so if you will, I invite you to look there with me. Um, Acts chapter 15, and we'll just look at that language there in verses 16 to 18. Actually, let me um, back up to verse 13, kind of get a running start at it there. In verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, that was again um, Peter and then Barnabas and Paul. After that, James comes up and after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he'll speak, uh, or he'll uh, paraphrase from the prophecy given there in Amos. So that takes us back to Amos 9. Here's what uh, James said about it at the council there in Jerusalem. Verse 16, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Now, you remember we'd said earlier on past times that uh, this chapter in in the book of Acts, chapter 15, is really the center of the book, literally, uh, the book of Acts. But it's also kind of the the doctrinal center. It's the doctrinal uh, center of the book. In uh, many regards, certainly concerning the freedom of the gospel, right? That was what was culminating there at the council. Was the gospel true? Was God truly free in salvation? Was the gospel uh, free to God to bring about according to His sovereign grace? Or must it have the works of man added in? Was it uh, a work of God alone, or was it a combined work of God brought about by God and man's efforts? And so we dealt with that. And then we also uh, looked at a little, uh, a little unique part of the council there that addressed the relationship between sister churches and how that transpired and the health in that and, and how it was to be worked out and uh, how we should be praying, for about, uh, uh, praying about those kind of relationships, building relationships with sister churches. Uh, so it was a, a highlight in that regard too, but also is a highlight uh, regarding prophecy. Prophecy and the interpretation of prophecy is at the center of this chapter, at the center of this council. And so you remember there that um, they dealt with these things, uh, these uh, brothers spoke, and then James kind of comes back behind Peter uh, Barnabas and Paul are there and gives this lengthy uh, address. So it says, yes, the God is free in salvation. Um, we are our brother's keeper, and this is how we need to relate to one another. And then he also pointed back to Amos 
and addressing how they should respond uh, in terms of sister churches. And, and he sends some messengers back with, uh, with um, Paul and Barnabas back there to Antioch. And the messengers deliver a letter saying, you know, here's what we see, here's what we understand uh, concerning the gospel and how we're to relate, to relate together as, as churches. And here's what we expect of the Gentiles. And then the two messengers come and they preach a long, lengthy message on the gospel of grace. But in there, that whole process was this dealing with prophecy. So this morning, we're going to do that, and we come to uh, the reality of the eschatology that's addressed there at the, that was addressed there at the, uh, at the Jerusalem Council, or uh, prophecy, or the doctrine of last things, if you will. So here's the question up front. Where does a church fit in Old Testament prophecy? Now, James is going to help us understand that. We're going to see how James views that question, how James would answer that question. This is a very good question for us up front when we're thinking about eschatology, that is, uh, prophecy, how we understand Old Testament prophecy, and specifically how we understand it in related to the doctrine of last things, to uh, how this all will be brought about, how this prophecy, how prophecy will <clears throat> unfold in space and time. Where does the church fit in Old Testament prophecy? Now, I didn't come up with that question all by myself. People have asked that before, but it's a really good question. And we need to answer it. And we need to answer it wisely from Scripture. So we need to be praying and asking God to help us to do that because there is some um, differing opinions in, uh, in real churches that really love God uh, all over the, uh, uh, the world, all over the globe today. So we're going to do our best and pray for God to give us wisdom here. And try to be as consistent as we can. So in this text, James does something here. He declares that the Gentiles could remain Gentiles and still be members of the church. And that was a big, big deal. So not only can they be in the church, not only can they belong to Jesus Christ, but they can belong to Jesus Christ freely as Gentiles. They don't have to take on a Jewish identity. And they certainly don't have to put themselves back under the law taking circumcision, and when you take circumcision, what comes with it? The keeping of the law. So that's put away. That's not necessary. That's binding. That's not a free gospel. So they do not have to put themselves under the law. And as a matter of fact, they don't have to put themselves under any kind of tradition or anything that even looks remotely Jewish. They can just be Gentiles. Isn't that glorious? They can just come in as Gentiles, that's grace. And still be members of the church. Now, he makes this point by pointing by going back to Old Testament prophecies. That's what I want you to hold on to right up front. He's going to say that Gentiles can come into the church and be members of the church and remain Gentiles. And where he goes to prove it is the, is the Old Testament, specifically to Amos chapter 9. So this morning, we're really going to look at Amos chapter 9 and try to work our way through that prophecy there and how James understood it. But that's where he goes. When James comes up to speak, and remember, he's the authority. He's the authority from the Jerusalem church. Now, when Antioch came, basically they're coming, and James really has the great influence here. The false teachers came from James. Now, James is not condoning at all what they taught. They went far beyond what he'd instructed them to do in Antioch. But there's still an accountability in that church. There's still a responsibility. The elders there must take responsibility for those false teachers. The two churches are going to get together and work this out. And James has a very key role because the false teachers, when they went in and, had a foot, and gained a footing in Antioch, they did so because they said, we're from James. That's how they gained a hearing. 
That's how. That's why Paul and Barnabas were not able to just completely shut them down right on the spot. Because there was that lingering reality of, wait a minute, they came from James. That's authority. That's the mother church. So James has a big role to play here. And when he addresses Gentiles coming in and remaining Gentiles, note that he does so by going back to prophecy. That's very important for us. Okay? So he's going to quote the Old Testament prophecy there. And he makes that point from, old, from the Old Testament that salvation of the Gentiles as Gentiles is indeed acceptable. They do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Amen? So that just goes, um, that's going to bring us to the background there, okay? So we're going to go to the book of Amos. Uh, turn there with me. Just go back to your Old Testament there and let's work our way through Amos. Amos chapter 9. Amos, Obadiah, you got it? You remember? Say the song in your head. That's right. Yeah, you get your kids to help you. Okay. Let's look here at the prophecy of Amos in chapter 9. And I'm just going to read through the first eight verses, all the way up to eight, verse 8a there. All right? And this is kind of going to give us an introduction. So we just want to see the background here. So verse 9 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Smite the capitals, so that the thresholds will will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee, or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. And though they hide in the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight (coughs) on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, the one who <clears throat> excuse me, touches the land so that it might melt, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rise up like the Nile and subside like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, he who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from, from Kaftor and the Arameans uh, uh, from Akur? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Now, that language is language of judgment. So what we're looking at here is judgment being pronounced by a sovereign God. Judgment being pronounced on the nation of Israel. That's who he is addressing here. And uh, he says there that um, in verse 8 he calls Israel that sinful kingdom. So Israel's in the, the crosshairs of a sovereign God here. And he's pronouncing judgment on 
on the nation. And the language is such that the judgment is inescapable. Do you see the language there? Though they would hide in the depths. Now it's figurative. But he's making a point. Though they would hide in the depths of the sea, I'll find them out. Though they would try to escape to the mountains of Carmel, I'll find them out. Wherever, there's nowhere to hide. So God is declaring to them His sovereignty. And He's speaking of His omnipresence. I'm everywhere. Wherever they might think to go, I'm already there. Eternally. I'm one big eternal now. I created space and time. And wherever they might try to roam from my sight and my judgment, it's inescapable. I have all right and authority and power to judge them. I'm omniscient. I know exactly where they are. I know exactly what they're thinking. There's nowhere for them to escape. I am their sovereign God and I am pronouncing inescapable judgment upon this nation. Why? Because they are a sinful nation. And there, if you'll look in verse 7, he says says that the sons of Israel there are are the same to him as the sons of Ethiopia. He says there, Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? Now, he's making this point. You're no different than the pagan cultures around you. You're no different. You're no different from the Philistines. You're no different from the Arameans. You're just like the pagans. There's one difference. I have not made covenant with them. So as we talked about this morning in our morning Bible study, the nation of Israel is a sinful kingdom and there's a, there, on top of that is piled the reality of being covenant breakers. He says, you're no different to me. You're just like the pagan nations around you. There's nothing different about you. You've broken covenant. You're guilty. And now I'm going to judge you. It's an inescapable judgment that's being pronounced here. My goodness, Brother Mark just brought us through Judges chapter 19 this morning in our Bible study. Can we not see the sinfulness of the kingdom of Israel? This is a sinful kingdom. That's the point. There's no difference between them and the surrounding Gentile kingdoms. They're guilty. And God is going to judge them. So that's the background. That's what's happening. That's what what brings about the prophecy. The prophecy is is predicated upon judgment, righteous judgment of God on sinful Israel. It's coming about. There's nothing they can do about it. There's nowhere to hide. There's nothing else to do. Judgment has been pronounced. It's inescapable. And that brings us to this one reality. Although it's inescapable, there is a little blueprint here that I want you to notice in verses 8b to 12. There's a blueprint. Uh, or if you will, kind of an interpretation that we need to see here in the context of judgment. So the context, the background, the backdrop, judgment. Now, we get a little blueprint that we need to, to uh, address here in terms of interpretation. What's going on within this reality of judgment? Look there beginning in 8b. And it says, Nevertheless, yes, judgment, but wait a moment. There's more. Nevertheless, 
I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Now, what is, who's he talking about there? That's Israel, right? But we, we just, just, hey, no, just, Israel was just, it's inescapable. They're going to be judged. Yes. But here, we find out that not totally. I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Verse 9, For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve. But not a kernel will fall to the ground, and all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say calamity will not overtake or confront us. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and the wall uh, <coughs> and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, let me make mention there when he says declared by my name. We go back to verse 6. And you see there, uh, he's referring to the Lord is his name. That's Yahweh. You see that the Lord there, that's translated Yahweh. There. So that's the covenant keeping, covenant making and keeping God. So by the covenant, the name of the covenant God, these things will take place. And then when we get down to verse 12, he says that, they, that uh, the reason that, uh, that the booth of David will be rebuilt is that he may possess a remnant from Edom, and all the nations, and those who are, who are called by His covenant name. So now here we have Israel being judged. And within that pronouncement of judgment, there is a little blueprint. There is a little uh, interpretation that we have to make inside the pronouncement of judgment. And that's that all of Israel is not going to be judged. You see that? Nevertheless, I will not destroy the house, all of the house of, totally destroy the house of Jacob. And then he goes on and he says how this is going to work out. So look there in verse 9. Behold, I am commanding, I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. In verse 10, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity, the, the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Well, there's a picture here with a sieve. Right? And what's the sieve used for in the ancient world? To take the, the heads of grain and to shake out the chaff, right? So here's the picture that's being given to us. Israel's going to be judged, but not all of Israel. So just as the grain is put into the sieve and shaken out, the good grain there is going to be spared. It's not going to fall to the ground like the chaff. So the sieve is a picture of the nations through which God will sift Israel. And not all of Israel will be condemned. But there in verse 10, all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake us or confront us. Israel will be judged, and they will be judged as chaff that falls away out of the sieve. But remaining in there is good grain. That's a part of Israel that... (coughs) Excuse me. That will be spared, if you will. That's the remnant of Israel. Now, that language is not here in the text, but that's what's being addressed. The remnant of Israel that will be spared. So I'm going to spare a remnant, but I'm going to judge Israel at large. Do you see this in the picture in the prophecy? 
And I'm going to judge them through the nations. The sieve is the nations. The nations of which I will bring about to bring out the judgment of my people. I will do that through their interaction of the nations. Now, we're in our morning Bible study. We're in Judges 19. Man, we're looking at nigh 500 years in the promised land. And what's it been? We, surely Brother Mark has got... We shared it again. He's got the image. You know, just seared in our mind, right? Up and down, up and down. Now, in that we see the consistency of a covenant God. A covenant-keeping God. But the, also the consistency of a covenant-breaking people. We got almost 500 years of consistent covenant-breaking. Were the idolatry after idolatry all through the process of these nations. Man, we're seeing them go into captivity. We're seeing the temple being uh, uh, destroyed. We're seeing division, all the infighting, all the civil wars. You know, it's 500 years of this. So the judgment, that, that is judgment. Do you understand? That is judgment. It's ongoing. But now it's coming to a climax. So now when we see verse 10, the the sinners of my people will will die by the sword. And those who say the calamity will not overtake us or confront us. So this is is ongoing. The Old Testament is just one long visual of the judgment of Israel once they enter the promised land. But in space and time now here, what's happened? They've gained a little bit of freedom, haven't they? They've become a Roman colony. Right? Now they don't have, they're not, uh, you know, they're not autonomous. They don't have full freedom, but they have a little bit. So there's a little light here. There's a ray of light. And in that time, the Christ comes. Christ is born. But when Christ is born, although there's a little ray of light there in the context of National Israel. Once Christ is born, that is the beginning of the climax of the end, okay? In space and time, that's what's happening here. Once Christ was born, that is really the kind of the, the, the nail in a coffin. In, in that time of Christ's earthly ministry, the nail is being driven, the final nail is being driven into the coffin of their judgment. So that's the marker for you. Once Christ is born, and again, the judgment, we've been seeing it for centuries. Now you're looking at the very last little nail. And you're going to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Israel will be judged. And in that, there will be good grain that's spared out. But the nation at large is judged. The judgment of Israel came at the birth of of Christ. You can write that in your notes. That's important. Just seal that. That's when it came. So we see that we see that the, the imagery of there of the, of the, of the sheath and, uh, and the, um, the nations being the means through which God would judge Israel. And that cli- coming to a climax at the birth of Christ is when that really transpires in space and time. But how? There'll be, uh, we see how they were judged, but, uh, but, but how will the remnant be saved out? How does that work? Well, look there in verses 11 and 12. In that day, I will rise up, a, uh, rise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also rise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom 
and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. So it's the rising up of the booth of David, or if you will, the tent or the tabernacle. Some of your Bibles might say tabernacle there. Uh, and that may have a, a, an imagery or, or to, to point back to the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles where there was a little booth or, or, if you will, tent raised up there. But it's speaking to David's house, so David's throne, David's royal house, which now we know in this context in space and time has been ruined. He's been put away. The throne of David, if you will, is no longer. It's been destroyed. But it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be raised up. So the tent of David is going to be raised up. And it's through that raising up of the tent of David that's going to be the means through which the remnant of Israel will be saved from God's judgment, righteous judgment. And along with that, we have some very interesting language there in verse 12. So it's going to be built up, and that's going to be the means through which the remnant will be saved, and also that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, Edom there pictures the Gentiles. So now we're looking at two elements of of, uh, salvation here through the tent of David being rebuilt. A remnant from Israel, and now a remnant from the Gentile world. Whoa. He goes on to say, And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, and that name is Yahweh, His covenant name, His covenant-keeping name. So now Amos tells us here (coughs) that the fallen tent will be rebuilt. That's the house of David. It'll be built up. And the royal house will be raised up. And that will be the means through which the remnant of Israel will be saved. And the remnant of Gentiles. They're mentioned uh, or kind of embodied there in Edom. And then the beautiful language. And there's going to be addition of all nations. So what's that saying? That's a covenant promise language there to Abraham, right? I'll make you the father of many nations. So I'm going to give you a little hint up front. There's a seed of Abraham and there's a son of David that's going to be addressed here in this concept of redeeming out a remnant. Okay? That's a really good clues, wasn't it? There's a seed of David. I mean, excuse me, a seed of Abraham and a son of David. Abraham was promised seed that he would be the father of many nations where you're looking at him right here. That's the emphasis in this language. There's going to be a remnant from Edom, from the Gentile world. And by the way, there's going to be many nations involved in that. Amen? Somebody stuck in little nowhere in North Carolina. That's that's extending across the globe right there. And then there's going to be a son of David because his throne, his royal household is going to be rebuilt. Okay? So the restoration of the house of David will come through Jesus Christ. There it is. And we're going to talk about how that works out and how, more importantly, how James sees that so we rightly understand how that works out. So all nations that are called by the name Yahweh will come under the shelter of the house of David. The reign of the royal house of David will be their shelter from the storm of God's righteous wrath. David will inherit these nations, or his house will inherit these nations, and that those nations will be on the authority of David's royal house. Do you see the picture in prophecy here? You with me? Okay. So good, uh, good question to come up next here as we come up on 
this point in the text. Here's a question for us so we can kind of make sure we're all on the same page. How will this prophecy work itself out? That's what we need to know, right? So we have the language here to hold on to. We realize there's an inevitable judgment of Israel. But wait, some of Israel is not going to be part of that judgment. They're going to be spared. And they're going to be spared through the rebuilding of the house of David. And then along with the sparing of part of Israel, there's going to be the sparing of part of the nations. The Gentile world is going to be part of this sparing out of God's judgment through, both through, the building up of the house of David. So, that's, are y'all interested? That sounds really cool, doesn't it? Alright, let's try to figure out what that means. So how's this prophecy, this is prophetic language, this is figurative. Well, how does it really work out? Well, that brings us to um, some questions. There's different views of how this works out. And t- this morning I just can't tackle any number of them. I'm going to give you one that's, I believe, most prominent in our context. Um, that, that I think I should address, and then and that, that I don't that I see is, is not not correct. And then I'm going to try to give you what I'm going to call the apostolic interpretation here, or James' view, and, and do my best to express how we come to that conclusion through the text. Okay, but the first view that I want to say uh, that I want to oppose that is very prevalent and common in our in our culture, in our time, in our immediate context, ministry context is that has been, it's been referred to as the literal view or the dispensational view of this. And so that dispensational view would be the literal restorational rule of Israel over the world in a future millennial age, a future millennium. So a literal rule where national Israel will, will be revived in a future time. Okay, And this comes after Christ. Uh, return after his second advent, so after his, his, his next coming. So we're awaiting Christ's return now, right? And so after that return, whenever that happens, the millennial will be, uh, Israel will be restored in a millennial state after that. So that's the marker. And that understanding of prophecy, the marker is the return of Christ. After that, the millennial reign of national Israel. Okay, you with me? Okay. Uh, so after that, after Christ's return, there will be a, a rebuilding of a literal temple in uh, Jerusalem. A return to, and that's an inevitable return to what? If you're going to have a millennial reign, a real literal millennial reign, after the second coming of Christ, and a return to the temple re- being rebuilt in Jerusalem, then that's also going to be the returning of? Yes, Judaism, Right? Now, we'll get to this, but I'm just going to plant a little seed in your head. That means the rebuilding of a certain wall. I don't, mean a, I don't mean a physical wall. I mean a spiritual wall. That's already been broken down. Just hold that. I'll let that linger. So the rise of the fallen tent of David's royal house, according, uh, under the dispensational view, is the future rule of Israel after the second coming of Christ. And that comes after the Gentiles have been called, because we've already been called, right? The Gentiles have been, that's important, that's a theological uh, 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 important point here, or, or, or important theological point here. That would come after the Gentiles have been called, because we're awaiting the return of Christ. We're still waiting, but we've been called already, right? We've been called to the faith. So, in the dispensational view, the rebuilding of the house of David, which is that new Israel in the millennial age, that's the rebuilding of the house of David. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. 
happens after the Gentiles have been called in. Called into the faith. So, and it happens after this present age, the rebuilding of a temple and a future millennial reign. Um, I do not believe that is the correct interpretation of this prophecy. With all, with all respect, there are many dear brothers and sisters that do and have many, uh, a litany of proof texts and, and a way to string this together that's um, very interesting. I believe they're wrong. And there are wonderful brothers and sisters that, <coughs> that um, I admire and I have learned much from um, that, that would hold this view. And I just, with, again, with all humility, I believe they're wrong. And I'm going to try to express what I, I believe is, is uh, true here in Scripture. And I'm going to call that an apostolic interpretation. So let's go back to Amos here. Amos chapter 9. I want you to look first at verse 11 and just see that language there. In verse 11 it says, In that day. And so we need to know what that day is because the dispensational view would say, In that day, what do you think they're talking about when they look at this prophecy and they they say, which by the way, James doesn't even say (laughs) that in his uh, his retelling of, of the prophecy, but they'll come back to Amos and they'll pick out that that language in verse 11 in that day I will rise up the fallen booth of David and what do you what do you believe they they understand that day to be the second coming of Christ right but if we just go back to verse 10 I want you to see a combination of things happening here in space and time that James understands happening literally as he in space and time as they're at the Jerusalem council he's talking about a literal uh, theological occurrence that is going on in his day, not in the future. Okay? Verse 10. All the sinners of my people by the sword, those who say the calamity will not overtake us or not overtake or confront us. Then we find the language in that day. So, what I would say to you up front here, and trying to rightly understand this prophecy, is in that day, is speaking of the judgment of Israel. Now, the judgment of Israel was culminated at the coming of Christ, right? Or the beginning of the end, if you will. The final nail in the coffin. So in that day, there's two things that are simultaneously going on. There's the judgment, the inevitable judgment that is coming on Israel. And simultaneously, the sparing out of a remnant of Israel and a remnant of the Gentile world through the rising up of the booth of the royal house of David. Do you see it all put together? So two theological realities are happening in that day, which I, I will say to you is occurring as James speaks. It's unfolding in his time. It's not coming in the future. Israel has been judged at the coming of Christ. That's the final nail. And the house of David has been raised up and established at the coming of Christ. And we'll get to what that means specifically, okay? But those two things are hanging there, and that's the difference. So in that day is not a a future day waiting the coming of Christ. It's an actual events that are taking place in James' time. One, the full final judgment of Israel as a nation. And then the house of David being built up right there in their time. Okay? So let's try to fill that out a bit. 
Here's how I would try to put it. The day of God's return in mercy for the remnant of Israel is also the day of judgment for all the sinners of His people. And it's transpiring as James speaks. It's unfolding. So judgment on Israel comes to a close during Christ's earthly ministry. They're again really established in its climax at His birth. And then it comes to a complete and final judgment when? Now I'm saying the last, the very last of the judgments been going on, we've been seeing it all through the Old Testament. It comes to a, a final climax at the birth of Christ, but then it comes to an end in space and time historically. And we have a vivid, vivid picture of that. Do you know what I'm speaking of? More specific to the real judgment of, of the establishment of national Israel. When did national Israel go down fully in space and time? 70 A.D. 70 AD. We can look back at, that's it. We can see a moment in time. That's the culmination of the judgment of national Israel. That she's done right there. Now again, the dispensationalists would say that she's coming back in a future millennial age. But I'm saying that James takes Amos and says she's judged at the, you know, in the earthly ministry of Christ, culminating in 70 A.D., and also the house of David is being raised up right then. So the rebuilding of the fallen tent. That's now we, we've got to work that out to really understand what's going on here. The rebuilding of the fallen tent of David, of the fallen tent of David, of his royal house. What is that? It's the resurrection of Christ to sit on the throne of David. James takes this language and he points to the resurrection, not the second coming of Christ. That's key for us. The dispensational view says James here is pointing to the second coming of Christ. And I just can't find that in James' explanation of this prophecy. James is pointing to the resurrection. Look, what, the, the book of Acts has a theme. The building of the New Testament church, right? Okay, there's a foundational pillar in the building of the New Testament church that runs throughout the book of Acts. It starts, it's, it's explained to us very early on in the book. I'll give you some big hints. Chapter 2 and chapter 5. What's, what's central to the building of the church? All of Acts teaches about, goes back and points to the resurrection of Christ. So the rebuilding of the fallen house of David is the resurrection of Christ. Not the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. That's what they say in Acts. That's what they say in the direct context. That's their gospel message. That's what they've been preaching as God is building the church. The church is built upon the resurrection of Christ that validates His earthly ministry and validates the reality of His atoning sacrifice on behalf of His people that now Jew and Gentile might be grafted in to right relationship with a holy God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 29 31 says it like this, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, now this is Peter speaking, regarding the patriarch David, you see him go back there? Where did he go? David's royal house. That he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to sit one of his descendants, hint, on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the second advent. Oh no, wait a minute. The resurrection. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither 
abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So Peter takes us to the resurrection as the restoration of the fallen tent of David. It's Christ. David himself knew because he was a prophet and he looked forward to the resurrection. That's the message of Acts. Not a second coming. Resurrection, not a second coming of Christ in glory. Resurrection puts Jesus on the throne of David and rebuilds the fallen house of David in that day. Judgment and building the house all happening at the same time. And it's unfolding as James is speaking. He's speaking about a current reality to them. This is the church he's talking about. He's not talking about a future Israel, national Israel. He's talking about the church. The book of Acts is about the church. This is a prophecy dealing with the church. So it's the resurrection that puts God on, uh, the, uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the throne of David. Now it's figuratively speaking, and theologically speaking, but nonetheless what James is addressing here. So the judgment of Israel begins at the conclusion of, of, um, of Christ's earthly ministry, starting at His birth. And it's dealing with His resurrection, not a second coming. Acts 5, verses 30 and 32 says this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, there you go, who you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one who God exalted to His right hand as a prince, raising up of the house of David, the royal house of David, and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel. That's the remnant. And forgiveness of sin. And we know that's extended to the Gentiles. I just spoke of that. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Jesus now reigns on the throne of David. Right now, He reigns on the throne of David. At the moment of His resurrection, He was reigning on the throne of David. That was transpiring in the time of James. James is looking back to the prophecy of Amos, and he's seeing it unfold in his lifetime. And he's speaking of it in that way. They preach the resurrection, not his second coming. That's not their message. So he understands the booth to be the restored house of David because of the resurrection. That validated that Jesus is everything he said he was. He is the Son of God who has made atonement for the sins of his people. He is the substitutionary, sacrificial atonement on behalf of His people that makes His people in right relationship with God through His atoning blood on their behalf. He is the sacrificial Lamb and He is the one who is seated on the royal throne of David, seated at the right hand of God. That's a throne of power and majesty. That's what Stephen saw. That's what got Stephen martyred. That's what Stephen preached. He saw him. He saw him at the right hand of God. That's a, that's a, that's a, his vision was of Jesus Christ in authority. He's established there as reigning over the house of David. He is the son of David that now reigns on high. And he's also the son of God. So there in the resurrection, the house of David was reestablished. And the people of God were then established in right relationship with their God. The atoning work of their Savior. He is Prince and Savior. And this is brought about through the resurrection. So James says that the gathering uh, uh, <coughs> uh, takes up 
or excuse me, takes place after the rebuilding of the tent of David. That's important. So the gathering of the Gentiles comes after the rebuilding, right? That's what's going on here, space and time in Acts. So the resurrection transpires. That's the rebuilding of the house of David. And then the Gentiles are brought in. Correct? You see, you see the timeline there? So now that, that's contrary to a dispensational view, which says, well, um, they're, they're brought in. That would be now in the current age. And then the house of David rebuilt, be, be rebuilt in the millennial kingdom. Do you see the difference? So in actuality, the house is rebuilt and then the Gentiles are brought in. So two different views there. And of course, I, I believe the apostolic view is the correct view. And the Gentiles come in after. The coming of the Gentiles follows, or to be saved by the Lord follows the raising up of the tent of David. So James sees the calling of the Gentiles through Simeon here as a fulfillment of this prophecy. When he points back, he says, this is what Simeon's been talking about. And here it's fulfilled in the prophecy. And that's transpiring as he's speaking to them. So James understood that the tent of David is already rebuilt. And the Gentiles now are coming in to the house of David that has been rebuilt. The literists believe that the Gentiles um, come in and then the house is rebuilt. So, two differing views. And that kind of brings us to the big picture. I'm going to try to tidy it up here, sum things up a bit for us, and um, bring this thing to a close and see if we can make sense of this prophecy and how we're to rightly understand it and how James understood it. And then we're going to, to follow as best we can uh, what James is, is understanding to be uh, the use of this prophecy from Amos and how he uses it in context. So let's look at the big picture. Acts uh, chapter 15, again, verses 16 through 18. How does James use it? Um, so there's some implications here. There's, there's judgment. So judgment is going on. How does James understand uh, Amos concerning judgment of Israel? So how does James deal with that? Well, they're going to be judged, right? But not all of them. So a remnant is going to be spared out. That's what James is seeing here in that judgment. Yes, national Israel is going to be, going to be judged, but a remnant of people will be, uh, um, will be spared out, a remnant of the Jewish people. So there's an ongoing destruction of the sinful kingdom of Israel. It comes to a climax and is destroyed fully. Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. So we see that in space and time. And then the rebuilding of the house of David is the rise of Jesus Christ, the son of David, to the throne of David and to the right hand of God the Father by His resurrection from the dead. That's what James points to. That's what Peter points to. That's what Paul points to. That's what Barnabas points to. None of these men in context here as part of this Jerusalem council ever point to a second coming as the rebuilding of the house of David. They go right to the resurrection. And it also speaks of not only judgment, but salvation. Salvation of a remnant of Israel. Now, who is that? That's all Jewish believers in Christ, all all those uh, Jewish people who believe on Christ, then and now to the coming of Christ, until the second coming, okay? Every Jewish believer, from that point, all the way to Christ's return. That's the remnant of Israel. That's what's being addressed here. So all that are coming under the authority of Christ... And the Gentiles, what about the Gentile remnant out of the Gentile nations? Well, that's all Gentiles coming under the authority of David's royal house refers to all those being saved. All Gentiles who are being saved in Jesus Christ. The fulfillment 
of the rebuilding of the royal house of David. That's Christ. All Gentiles who are trusting in Christ from, through the, uh, the preaching of Peter and Paul and James and Barnabas all the way to the end of the age, all the way to Christ returns. Every Gentile in every corner of the world that responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ is part of this remnant among the nations, among the Gentiles that's being addressed here. That's who we're addressing in the terms of the salvation of the remnant of Israel and the remnant among the nations. So again, it's figurative language here, but it's a reference to uh, a, um, a time when followers of Christ are going to inherit the earth. And that comes in the language that's giving as, as, uh, um, in verses 13 through 14 here, where it says in verse 14, I'll restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. Verse 15, I will also plant them on their land and they will, <clears throat> they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, you take that, it sounds like very literal language, and you take that and you could look at a millennial kingdom. But this, the, the whole prophecy is figurative language, right? It doesn't, it doesn't switch from figurative language to literal language. That's a bad interpretation. You've got to stay consistent. So if we've looked at things and we know it's literal, or excuse me, we know it's figurative, then we don't want to all of a sudden just switch to something literal. Although that would be easy to do that here when we look at these last few verses. So when it talks about this restoration here, there is a restoration. Again, figurative language. And it's a time when followers of Christ inherit the earth when we're raised from the dead and inherit a new world, a new world that is redeemed by Christ. I say to you in the last part here, that's the language. The figurative language is speaking, again, of Christians. And it's speaking of our being resurrected from the dead to inherit a new world. A new world that is redeemed by Christ where there is no more sin and no more sorrow. An eternity with our King. Free from pain, free from suffering, free from the presence of sin. Amen? That's the language here. Now finally, a little more about the blessing of this reality, the blessing of the eternal reward, the eternal kingdom. And a little bit about the church here. Because again, there's so much in in our context of the dispensational view here that there's an emphasis on the kingdom, right? Right? The millennial kingdom. That's, that's, the, that's the big brother, isn't it? And we're just kind of a footnote in the church. We're just waiting. You know, the church is just kind of a holdover. You know, we're just hanging out in a little bit of space and time here. And then, bam, what we're looking for is that, that millennial reign. That gets all the headline, right? In the church, we're just kind of, you know, we're just trying to tread water. Isn't that it? And, and I want that to end. There's a blessing here for the church. This prophecy is about the church. It's not about a millennial kingdom. We are God's plan. We are the fulfillment of God's prophecy. Amen? It's the church. Again, there's no, a church says Christianity is no Christianity at all. The church is God's means. The church is God's plan. The church is the fulfillment of God's prophecy. The fulfillment of this prophecy of Amos, viewed there by the apostle himself, is the church. The church hidden and purified in Jesus Christ. Again, a millennial reign puts the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile right back up. 
There's no other way. And that has already been broken down. It's been broken down in a beautiful sense because it's been broken down that the church may be grafted in, Jew and Gentile together, both equal in Christ. That's the beautiful picture of our unity. That's why we come to the table. We're unified in Christ. Your unity to Christ unifies you with brother. And that transcends all race, gender, social barriers, social status, economic reality. It transcends it all. And we're going to put a wall back up in a future, in a future millennium reign? No. This prophecy is about the church. It's the church. Millennium kingdom leads to a low view of the church, I'm afraid. And yet the church is the fulfillment here. We are the end of the age. We are the means through which God calls Jews and Gentiles into Christ, to salvation in Christ. So what are we to do? We're to pray. You're the church. You're the means. You are the fulfillment of God's prophecy here. You are the recipient of His sovereign grace. Delight in the work of the church. The blessings of the new heaven and the new earth are a future blessing that, is, that belongs to the church. It's physical prosperity here. There's figurative language here, but it's physical prosperity in a new heaven and a new earth. But now in this age, you are the fulfillment. That's coming. That's coming to the church in an eternal state, a glorious state where we're free from sin and suffering. Oh, treasure that. Look forward to that. But know and pray. Pray as the church of Jesus Christ. Know you're the means through which God is bringing about the fulfillment of His plan, the restoration, the salvation and restoration of His people. And again, there's figurative language that closes this out here. When it talks about the captives there in verse 14, I certainly believe there's a physical privilege here in the new heaven and the new earth, but we're not looking at a millennial reign. And the rebuilding of the cities and the planting of the vineyards and the drinking of the wine and the making of gardens and the eating of fruit. Well, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I know it's good. There was a... a, a a little dialogue between a very well-known, years ago, between a very well-known sports announcer, Howard Cosell, and the famous boxer, Muhammad Ali. And Cosell was, uh, uh, he was uh, quite a guy with the words. And uh, he asked Ali, he said, why, why are you so truculent with the, with the press? Uh, truculent meaning, why are you so uh, defiant and aggressive? You know, Brother Bill, you always itching to peck a fight. Um, that's you, brother. And why is this? And, and Ali famously, and, and as only Ali could do, said, well, I don't know what truculent means, but that's good. I'm it. <laughs> I'm that. So I don't know exactly what all this means here in 14 and 15, but I know it's good. This is good. And certainly, we know that it's with our Lord. And in verse 15, we know this, that this is God saying to us, I will also plant you in that land. We're going to be planted in our eternal state by our Savior. And He's going to be with us. It's a physical prosperity for sure. We're no longer captives. We're safe though. He plants us. We're safe at home. That's why I love baseball. Baseball, the goal of baseball is always to get home. It's my favorite sport. Because it's got the perfect goal. It's a picture of our reality as a church. We're going home someday safely we'll arrive safely at home because our God will deliver us there that is our future glory 
because we're the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're His people and we'll arrive, we'll, we'll rely, we'll arrive safely forever with our King and we'll gaze into the King, uh, eyes of the King of glory eternally, evermore filled with His majesty. Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. And He, that being our Savior, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All those things are going to be real as we fulfill this prophecy as the church here on earth, but they will pass away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for... Uh, this little prophecy of Amos that um, your apostle James so long ago and, and the power of the Spirit brought forth clearly to us. I pray that uh, uh, you will help us to rightly see these things and hold them with um, tenderness, hold them with fear and trembling, hold them with humility, and hold them with uh, certainty, knowing that you are a God And you are a faithful God, although we are a covenant-breaking people, uh, the same as Old Testament Israel. You have made covenant with your remnant among the Jewish nation and among the Gentile world. And that is your church. And you are a covenant-keeping God, worthy of all worship. Thank you for such grace that you've extended to the likes of us and the person and work of of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to His name. Thank you, great God. In your name we pray. Amen.